and welcome to Thumbing Through Yesterday, the podcast where we take our favorite books off the shelf, dust them off, and remind ourselves why it is we love them so. My name's Tom Galley, and joining me today, we've got Tony Pasculi. Thank you, Tom. What are we talking about today, Tony? Today, we're talking about a weird, very atypical Stephen King novel, novella, uh, called Hearts in Atlantis. Uh, and Hearts in Atlantis is a, is a collection of of works, each of which is maybe a novella or a novel on its own. Um, and the entire thing is about uh, the Vietnam War. And then this one little piece of it is what we're going to focus on, uh, the one in the middle called Hearts in Atlantis. Now, you, you labeled this last time uh, as the least Stephen King, Stephen King ever. Um, I got to agree. <laughs> Yeah, it's there there's no there's no monsters, there's no supernatural terror. Uh it's 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 relatively grounded for King um in in reality and uh yeah, and it's just far away from his typical subject matter. It's fascinating. So, why such an atypical King book as a favorite? Uh well, that's a good question. I cuz King is one of my favorite writers. Um but this is my I think this is my favorite King novel. Uh, and, and it's weird and, and maybe because it's different, maybe because it stands out because the other ones all sort of run together. Mm-hmm. It's like, you know, whatever, uh, dead zone. Was that the one or was it Salem's <laughs> lot or, uh, you know, um, they all feel very much of a kind and this one really stands out and, and I just really like it, uh, for, for reasons I guess we'll examine as we get into it because yeah. it's, it's a weird, it's a weird little story. Yeah. It is that. So the uh, the story itself was interesting and compelling. Um, when it started out, I wasn't even sure it read like a King story. I mean, it's, it, it had his very natural language, which is one of yes. the things I admire about him. He's a very easy read. He's a very folksy writer. Mm-hmm. Um, but he always has these little quirks. So there has to be a character or two in there that are just far enough off that they're not viable. Yeah. Um, and we had a couple of those. Oh, what was his name? The, the the asshole, Ronnie something. I don't remember the names, but yeah. Yeah, yeah he was implausible. He was implausible. <laughs> um, and then the, the one on the crutches. Um, oh, yeah, yeah. Now, and this is something that King loves to do, is to have a character who will mutter something and to have somebody who can't possibly be the only person who overhears it be the only person who overhears it. Yes. You know, and we have that happen with this, uh, this character. I can't believe I can't remember his name. Stokely Jones Stokely. the third, also Stokely. called Rip Rip. <laughs> yeah. And that was the, that was the thing, the Rip Rip. Yeah. Which I really wanted him to explain, but he never did. Yeah. He usually explains those. I think it was that he kind of mutters under his breath and then the asshole character started calling him Rip Rip because what he, he's like going, <clears throat> you know, as oh, he's walking okay. on his crutches. Okay. I think I that was I the idea. That. Yeah. Yeah. So, so what did you, okay. Aside from it being atypical uh, and full of the typical, I mean, aside from the atypical subject matter and yet, you know, uh, full of typical uh, King ticks, I would say, mm-hmm. I, I really noticed those this time. Normally I just sort of glide by them. And this time I was just like, oh my God, that is, just so, <laughs> why, why do you do that? Uh, but what did you think? What did you think of the well, you story know, I, overall? I enjoyed it. Um, and I really, in a way, I really empathized or, or you know, related to the, the concept, mm-hmm. right? Where you, you've got this, uh, 
this group of people who the common thread is that they live on the same floor in a dormitory. Yeah. Right. They're all early in their college years. Mm -hmm. um, and something becomes a welcome distraction and evolves into an unwelcome obsession. Yeah. Just for the sole purpose of keeping them from being collegiate. Yeah. Right. Um, and, I mean, who hasn't? procrastinated it's like i've got a paper to write i've got a <laughs> final to study for i've got an assignment due um wow do my fingernails need cleaning yeah wow look at the pile of dirty socks i mean anything to not deal with that that drudgery that tedium so the stakes are actually higher for these guys so this is taking place during the vietnam war and most of these boys who are in college uh if they if they don't maintain their grades, they're going to lose their scholarships. If they lose their scholarships, they lose their ability to go to college. They lose their ability to college. They are eligible for the draft, and they're going to be sent to Vietnam. Yeah. So the stakes are very, very high to maintain to study and maintain a certain grade point average, and yet they are frittering their valuable study time and lives away playing this game of hearts, uh, this sort of ever-evolving game of hearts, which has taken over one of the lounges in their floor. Yeah. And I, I realized I remember more about how to play hearts than I thought I did. <laughs> I actually yeah. remember there was a, you know, I've, I've played intermittently here and there. Um, never got serious about it, but I remember there was a section where the, where the lead character is talking about, you know, the people that had no clues. Like, they didn't even understand the basic strategies and he enumerates like four basic yeah. strategies. I'm like, I should write those down. <laughs> those sound like four good basic strategies. I was aware of those. I played a lot of hearts. Uh, I, you know, when I was a freshman in college, our, our floor had, a, for some reason, had an obsession with speed chess. Uh, and everybody on our floor played speed chess every day. We would like get home from class and there would be a game going somewhere or a tournament. We organized a couple of tournaments. And it was just, it was so bizarre to me that college students who would otherwise spend their time, you know, uh, drinking and fornicating uh, and in between studying, of course, uh, we're just like playing so much chess. It's crazy to me when I look back on it. Uh, so this reminds me of that very much. Yeah. That's really interesting. The, uh, now again, you know, for me, Vietnam is just a lesson in a history book. Yeah. Um, technically I was alive as it was winding <laughs> down, you know, but I was, I was baby in arms. Yeah. Um, but the idea that somebody doesn't know what a peace sign is, Right. That's crazy, right? It's totally crazy. <laughs> and then the idea that as people figure out what it is, it's seen as something subversive, something mm -hmm. genuinely appalling or, or something with actual power. Yeah. Um, you know, I think of a peace sign and it's, I see tie-dye, I see flowers painted on the sides of Volkswagen buses, I see long flowing hair and purple sunglasses. Um, you know, I, I don't see subversion. I don't see fighting against the system in any meaningful way. Um, well, except that they were, they were fighting against the system. They were having it right in this novel. They're having all sorts of, uh, demonstrations and protests. And these are kind of radical at the time. The idea of, of, you know, marching in force, resisting authorities, uh, <clears throat> trying to get arrested to make a point, mm -hmm. you know, uh, growing their hair long, which was shocking at the time. Yeah. So, yeah. It's hard to put myself in that mindset. <laughs> We've come a long way since then, which is nice, <laughs> which is nice. Yeah. There were definitely some fun things. So the, uh, the, the lad who was in charge of the floor. Um, oh my God. Yeah. What a pill. Yeah. He reminded me of, um, 
in National Lampoon's uh, The Fraternity Movie. Um, Animal House? Animal House. <laughs> yeah. He reminded me of the ROTC commander. Sure, yeah. Right. That same sort of ridiculous adherence to a, a perceived minuscule amount of power. Yes. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, and the fact that it doesn't change, you know, if in, in other novellas, you know, we're given a glimpse of him and, mm -hmm. and it doesn't change, not to his benefit at all. Yeah. Uh, I think one of my favorite things about this book is actually the title. Uh, I, to me, it is just so evocative, although I can't have a hard time putting my finger on exactly what it evokes. Okay. But, but evokes for me, um, hearts in Atlantis, hearts meaning, uh, love and innocence, I think in this context and Atlantis meaning doom that these, that these young innocent people are just doomed by this calamity that is happening around them. And rather than, you know, rather than taking uh, sensible action, well, it's hard to define. I think that's part of the, one of the points of this is like, what is sensible action when your world is turning to chaos and shit all around you? Uh, is it to get good grades and, and not be there when the, when the, you know, civilization falls? Uh, or is it to actually take up arms and fight and protest? Um, yeah. And there's, so, there's no manual of what an effective, sensible thing would be either, yeah. right? Like I said, this is unexplored territory. Yeah. But most of these, most of these boys in this boys dorm take a third path, which is to basically abdicate from the whole situation, uh, dedicate themselves to playing hearts instead, uh, and then flunk out of college and be sent off to Vietnam. So, which is like the oh. ultimate... <laughs> I don't think the goal was the last part, but the goal, yeah. you know, the idea of withdrawing from the yes. conflict by, by this obsession. Yeah. No, that wasn't the goal. Obviously yeah. not the goal. And nobody wanted to go, but they, they were just so ill-equipped to deal with it. Yeah. That they, they resorted to this. Yeah. yeah. Now the whole name thing, um, I would have been so much happier if King had not tried to work the name into the text because I thought he just did a clumsy job mm. of that. You know, we're we're halfway, maybe even more than halfway into this this growing obsession and, and the people realizing they're in trouble but being powerless to stop themselves from mm -hmm. going down this course before uh, the lead character even reminisces about Atlantis at all. Yeah. Um, you know, and he does it three or four times, but each time it's clumsy and unprompted. Yeah. Um, you know, we, we never get a good strong tie-in as to what made him think to draw that analogy in the first place. And I certainly don't think that, at least within the context of this novella, um, King does a remotely good job of of weaving that together. It, it felt forced to me that he, he just wanted to get Atlantis in there so that the title on the cover was justified. <laughs> and I think it was a mistake or poorly done in this particular case. I think I, I this is one of my highlights, uh, that there was a song which was popular around that time by, he calls his singer Donovan Leitch, but he actually has a different name when I looked him up on Wikipedia and I can't remember what it was. And he was a one hit wonder and he had a song about the continent of Atlantis, which is kind of one of those, you know, uh, I'm going to say it was a, an early hippy-dippy song before the 70s were in full force, you know, sort of along the lines of Age of Aquarius or something like that. Okay. Yeah. Um, yeah. So I think that's his motivation. I, so. uh, I think that's King's motivation. He ties it to the character, but that's not something that resonates for me at all. So, yeah. yeah. It's, it's a good name and it has its own, you know, evocations, but... yeah. I, th I think in this case, he shouldn't have tried to write it into the text of the book. Yeah. So you actually read some of the other 
novellas. Yeah, slash I made it through the novels. first three before I had to uh, <laughs> to reassign my time. Yeah, um, Low Men and Yellow Coats was the first one, and then the third one was Blind, Blind Willie. Willie. Yeah, I so Low Men and Yellow Coats to me is the one that stands out is not really belonging in this collection, and maybe I just don't understand why it belongs in this collection. Uh, it sets up a lot of the characters who sort of we see again and again, and there's a there's a significant event that happens where uh, uh, a girl named Carol gets beat up by a bunch of bullies, and that Which, resonates throughout. Yeah, without that, the Blind Willie book can't happen. Yeah, yeah. Um, but again, I don't know what comes after that, but I thought, well, I mean, you know, just plowing into it from page one, mm -hmm. um, it was a King book. I mean, and this is a very <laughs> typical Stephen King book, uh, right up to the point where it gets too weird at the end. Yes. Um, <laughs> and a standing criticism um, of Stephen King for me is that Stephen King cannot end a book to save his life. Yeah. Um, and that was, that was true in, in Low Men and Yellow Coats. But I, I loved the, uh, you know, I loved, in fact, the, the description, you know, how, how our, uh, oh, what was his name? The, the old border. Ted. Ted. I remember how, how Ted was describing these people, Low Men and Yellow yes. Coats. And, yeah. Um, that's going to be something that sticks with me, just that phrase, if nothing else. Yeah. Low men. Yeah. 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 It was fascinating. It's a fascinating, it's a fascinating standalone. Uh, it also, I don't know if you've read the Dark Tower sequence. You see, now I'm regretting the fact that I haven't because he starts <laughs> talking about the beam and the Crimson yeah. King and it's like, and I know that the tie-ins are there. It's like, oh, now I'm going to have to go back. How many books is that? That's I'm going to have seven. to read all of it. Yeah. <laughs> It's at least seven in the main sequence, but there are a couple of other books like Insomnia, which is a standalone novel, ties in. It features the Crimson King. And there's another one called The Dark House, which also ties in uh, towards the end of that sequence. So, but seven yeah, in the main so sequence. That, maybe that's a summer project yeah. to go back and work through that. That's not the one where everyone dies of the flu, is it? That's not The Dark Tower. No, that's The Stand. That's The Stand. So, I, yeah. unfortunately for me, I've, I've read The Stand, but... Yeah. Oh, well. That... If I had not picked this as my favorite, it would, it was sort of, I think it might be a toss up between The Stand and Salem's Lot. Yeah. Stand is very, very yeah. high on my list of, of King novels. Well, those would be two other good choices. Yeah. The Blind Willie one, just. It's so weird. It is. It's weird. <laughs> and uh, I had very little interest in it. Very, I, I didn't identify with the character. There was nothing I wanted to know more. So it really just kind of became a, a slog for me to finish hmm. the book. Interesting. Um, and, and there wasn't a payoff for me. Uh, his, his blindness, his progressive blindness is not really explained. Is it a real thing? Is it a psychological thing? Because, you know, he, he did take an explosion in the face and lose mm -hmm. some vision, but he has some vision. But when he's been standing there pretending to be a Vietnam vet who's incapacitated, well, he actually is a Vietnam vet who's partially... Yeah incapacitated he his vision goes away the thing i was fascinated with about that is how procedural it is and how specific it is it's like we talked about uh the character of of mike and um better call saul and breaking mm -hmm. bad and how <clears throat> how the director would just show him you know just just going about his business doing something very specific but unexplained uh, and you know it's going to turn into something real and interesting later, but you don't know what it is. You just have to follow along going, what, what is he, why is he hammering nails into that hose? Yeah. Um, and this was like that. It's like, this guy is doing something. It's clearly ritualistic and it's very specific. He, he rents an office 
next to another office on a different floor. He goes in dressed as one guy. He crawls through the ceiling tiles. He changes into a different outfit. He comes back out. And then he pretends all day long to be a blind well, beggar. He goes from that <laughs> office into a random hotel bathroom. Yes. Changes into yet another person. Yeah. And then yeah. goes out and pretends to be yeah. you know, a blind veteran. So it's like, this is... To me, that's just automatically fascinating. It's so specific and so clearly motivated, but I don't know what the motivation is. Well, and, and that, I think, King falls down on, because it turns out he was one of the, the bullies who beat mm -hmm. up Carol. He didn't yeah. beat her up. He didn't strike her, but yeah. he, he was part of that party. Yeah. And now he's doing this penance because he feels bad about the fact he was part of a party that beat up a little girl who yeah. completely recovered. Yeah. Well, maybe not well, I also, psychologically, but... He feels bad about Vietnam. Yeah, I think yeah. It's, his penance is for Vietnam also, and he, he recasts it and makes it more personal with this with this other thing. But definitely, I think there's a reason that he's, you know, begging as a vet uh, and not as a just a homeless guy. Yeah. Now, if he's to be believed, begging as a vet is a pretty lucrative career. <laughs> that was fascinating also. <laughs> uh, you know, I read the occasional article that says that, you know, and this is not... Uh, this is not true of everyone, but there are, there are people who make a significant living uh, in begging in certain corners on in New York, you know, because the foot traffic is so high, people are generous, and, you know, if you're there for eight hours, you can pull down quite a bit of change. Hmm. Um, yeah, so. So that seemed plausible to me. Yeah, it's, it's on the verge of plausibility. It's Stephen King, so who knows? I'm sure he didn't yeah. do any research. Uh, it was a lot of money in the book. It's a lot of money. I mean, that's uh, not a deal breaker for me necessarily. Yeah. I love the fact that he had a, a false bottom suitcase so that <laughs> yeah. the, the piles of money didn't get too obvious, you yeah. know, as, as he was sitting there. Yeah. Um, and I love the image of he and his wife, you know, several times a year taking these bags full of coins and shoving them through the <laughs> donation slots at random churches. Yeah. Um, he has a wife who apparently knows what it is he does. Yeah. Right, because she puts tinsel into his empty briefcase, and yes. the tinsel ends up being part of his, you know, he puts it on his little sign, that, yep. whatever his beggar sign said. I really wanted them to explore that a little bit more, you know. That was interesting to me. I, it's one of those things, I'm not, I'm not married, I've never been married, but, you know, uh, occasionally you get a peek into someone else's married life, and, you know, people are weird, people are quirky, and if you're with somebody long enough, you know, your life partner is going to get to know some of those quirks. And if they stick around, it's like, well, hey, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, not everybody sticks around, but a lot of people do. This is true. So, yeah, I'm looking forward to finishing out the, the rest of the novel just to yeah. see, you know, because we've got these, these bizarre characters. And I was, I was so slow on the, the take up <laughs> on this. You know, I, I read the... Little men in yellow coats. And then I was probably a quarter of the way into Hearts in Atlantis before it clicks on me. This was that. Oh, <laughs> that's that he's one of the kid from the first story. <laughs> yeah. You know, and it's not until he's talking about, he's talking to his girlfriend and he happens to mention, no, not even Carol. He mentions Sully John. Yeah. Yeah. Um, which then leads to mentioning Carol. Yeah. Um, you know, and then we find out that, you know, Carol has her own claim to infamy. Which I'm sure will get explored yet later in in the novel. I'm hoping we'll get it does come back. It does okay. come back. Yeah, yeah. I don't know if it's, it comes back in a way that's satisfying. The threads between the different things are are very very loose connections. And I think if you read it for the connections, I think it's unsatisfying. I think it's more sort of a kaleidoscope 
of like, I wanted to look into this aspect of the Vietnam War or this aspect, you know, and one aspect was, uh, one aspect, I think, I guess the first part is the sort of, um, you know, whisper campaign and intelligence that's going on pre-war, you know, and sort of the, you know, uh, uh, I, you know, I don't know. The first one is sort of a mystery to me. Second one is clearly about the draft. Third one is about the aftermath. Um, you know, what happens to these guys who come back after they did these horrible things over there? Fourth one is just them much, much farther along in their lives as they're all starting to die off. Yeah. So. I don't know. Maybe he worked backwards through it or he just, he needed <laughs> it to focus it down to some origin point. Yeah. You know, but, you know, the, uh, Hearts in Atlantis and uh, Blind Willie, neither of those are kingy. Yeah, the typical, no, they're really not. There's something weird and creepy beyond the ken of normal men going on. Yeah. Um, which is just weird because it starts off with that. Yeah. You know, low men in yellow coats. That's, to me, that's why low men doesn't fit. It's the one in the book that is so, so very kingy. I mean, it could be, it could be in any other king collection. It's just a weird standalone novel like The Library Policeman or something. Uh, and, and yet it's in this book with these other much more serious and much more, although I don't want to say more serious or more grounded because they're all weird. They all have some like little departures from reality. Yeah, they're all weird. Yeah. Well, at least so far they're all weird. I'm assuming that's not going to change. Yeah. Um, with full of keen characters and, yeah. And strange motivations, but yeah. How much King, how much King have you read? I don't know that I've read a whole ton. I, I made it through the stand. Um, Christine, Carrie, um, Pet Cemetery. Um, you mentioned another one earlier that would have been your favorites. Salem's Lot. Salem's Lot. Yeah. Um, that's probably getting really close to. That's all the early stuff. Yeah. To it. Um, yeah. I know that I've come across a short story here and there. Uh, I really, re I remember reading one of his forewords or afterwards that has really stuck with me as he's describing his creative process. Hmm. Um, he says, my muse came along and shat on my brain. <laughs> and that's, again, something that's just stuck with me forever because... You know, every once in a while, I'm inspired to be creative, and it's, it feels like that. It comes out of nowhere. Yeah. It's intense as long as it lasts, and then, you know, it wanes off and is gone until the next time it happens. My favorite Sting quote or King quote about process is he he describes what he's going for. Uh, he he says that terror is the finest emotion. Yeah, if you can get people to feel actual terror, that's what he really, really is going for. And if he can't get terror, he'll settle for horror. And if he can't get horror, he'll just go for the gross out. <laughs> okay yeah so and i think he does achieve terror in places he mostly lives around horror and he's definitely not above gross out yeah and sometimes he just spends whole books there yeah. yep oh the one where the the young lady spends most of the book chained to a bed gerald's game gerald's game yep. yeah that that definitely went i don't know that it went terror but definitely horror and gross out yeah that not a favorite <laughs> yeah yeah, I would say it is mostly gross out. Just like that's just a yeah. long, gross book. And another example of a horrific ending. Yeah. Oh my <laughs> goodness! All right, so that's the thing. That's the thing that I was getting hit over the head with in this book is how, and I don't know what his childhood was like, but how much he sexualizes children. It's weird, uh, and that comes up a lot in here. Like his mother is incredibly suspicious of his relationship with Ted. Mm -hmm. uh, calling it out by name. It's just like to a, to a degree that's like that, you know, and she's obviously going through some stuff as well. Uh, and then there was some other stuff with, um, 
between Bobby and, and Carol when they're young. It's just like, really? That, that seems to be starting awfully early. Uh, there was another thing too. I can't remember what it was. Yeah. Just like this, this just, there's a little too much of this. Yeah. And it really yeah. brought to mind, in fact, exactly that ending of it, which was just the creepiest, the creepiest thing. Fortunately, didn't make it into the movie. It couldn't happen. <laughs> yeah. Indeed. Well, I wonder if, uh, I like to think that actually Stephen King is probably the most normal person on the face of the planet. He is just so profoundly well-adjusted that he's able to picture all of these things without, without distress. Possibly. Possibly. <laughs> not, not that he's one of my broken characters, right? He's, he's the, the standard by which everyone else is judged, right? He's normalcy equals Stephen King. Yeah. Although, although I don't think that's true. I don't think he's a normal <laughs> guy at all. Probably not. Yeah, but. no. All right. All right. Uh, Last thoughts? That's it. Yeah. Okay. So what are we reading next time? Uh, I thought we'd go with something, uh, knowing that we were reading some King, I figured <laughs> we might need a little bit of an upbeat here. Uh, a little bit of William Goldman, The Tale of True Love, The, the Princess, Princess Bride. Bride. Oh, fantastic <laughs> choice. Okay. Looking forward to that. We'll see you in two weeks. See you in two weeks. <laughs>